So in the last year, year and a half, I've been thinking quite a lot about the importance of self-identity. Because so much flows from who we understand ourselves to be, from our, from our identity, from our mental health, to how we respond to issues, from the decision-making processes and the decisions we make, to our sense of purpose in life. All of that finds its root and grows out of our sense of identity, who we are and what makes us who we are. You know, in the last uh, number of years, in the late 60s, I think it was, psychologist Eric Erickson sort of popularized and began to popularize this idea of identity and the identity crisis. It, for him, it was part of the natural process of, of life that we get into our teenage years and we have these identity crises. We try to figure out who we are and what that means and, and all this sort of thing. And that's become uh, very popular in society. But this idea of our identity and the importance of our of identity is, is not a new one. It didn't start in the 60s. Way back, if we think about Western culture, in, in ancient Greece, uh, philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, they were exploring things like self-awareness and virtue and the relationships that we had each other. And in those days, in ancient Greece, it was sort of the, the cultural roots of the West, I suppose, uh, our identity was really tied very closely to, the, to citizenship to city-states, to a people to which uh, we belonged. You skip up over quite a few uh, centuries and we come uh, to Europe and the Middle Ages and, and, and people's identity was deeply rooted in, in, in feudal hierarchy. You were a lord or you were a serf or you were a shining knight out to rescue damsels in distress or whatever it is, but your identity was very much tied to the hierarchy of society and your identity was given to you uh, pretty much by birth and then the way you were raised. Uh, then we get towards the, uh, the Renaissance and in the Renaissance, uh, individualism began to rise uh, in people's consciousness and in their mind. And, and so we've got at the end of the Renaissance, uh, Shakespeare in, in Hamlet has this the phrase that I'm sure you've heard, uh, to thine eyes self be true. Uh, we kind of popularized that to uh, you do you. It didn't sound quite as poetic, but it's kind of the same idea. It's this idea of our identity and, and individualism and who am I as, as a person and as an individual. You get into the, into the, the mid or the later 1800s and this, this new idea started to come about where our sexual orientation began to be part of, of our identity and, and we invented the words of uh, heterosexual and homosexual. Uh, these are the first time that these words came into being. And then we carry on into the modern and the postmodern time. And identity uh, is really looked at through psychological and sociological ideas and it challenges the ideas of a fixed identity. And the idea that we have a fluid identity and our self-identity changes and we're experimenting with, with the idea of, of social constructs and, and how that can change and how that changes our identity and how we need to flow. And so this idea of self-identity has got a long, long history and quite a bit of changes within that. And now, of course, we add to those things we talked about, things like careers and wealth and power and status and change. And so uh, this idea of, of identity crisis has become quite popular. And we have these things, not only in our teenage years, but, but when you get married, or you lose a spouse, or you lose a job, or you get a new job, or you retire. And it all impacted this idea of our identity. But what I want to talk about today is something that I think is bedrock 
to this whole thing. Something that is not fluid, something that should not change, something that should be the cornerstone upon which all the rest of our sense of identity is As I've been wrestling through this whole thing about identity in the last while, one of the resources that we've been looking at as elders is is stuff put out by Faith Beyond Belief. And the director of Faith Beyond Belief, Jojo, uh, he said that in the passage that we're looking at today is really a sense of this bedrock idea of our self-identity. The cornerstone upon which the rest of our identity and our understanding of who we are and how we live out of that should find itself. So let's read it and see if we can pick up some clues. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, starting with verse 18 and going through into chapter 14. I'm not referring to all of you, because I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who has shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you believe that I am who I am, but but I've got control over life and death is what Jesus is saying. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone accepts me and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he said this, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and he testified, very truly, I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. And one of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. And so Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said to him, ask him what he means, sort of kind of on the quiet. And leaning back against Jesus, remember that at the table here, and they're all kind of laying down at this time. And, uh, they, you know, this was the table, they'd all be lying this way to it. And so the disciple that Jesus loved leans back towards Jesus and says, Lord, who is it? Who's going to betray you? And Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I'll give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. This very intimate thing. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon, Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. And so Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus had said this to him. Since Jesus had charge of the money, some thought that Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival. Because remember, it's Passover. Or to give something to the poor. And as soon as Jesus had taken the bread, he went out and it was night. And remember in the Gospel of John, light and darkness is this contrast between life and death and God and the enemy. And when he was gone, Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified. And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and he will glorify him at once. My children, I'll be with you only a little longer. You'll look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you, so that you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life. Of Jesus. We are disciples whom Jesus loves and it determines everything else. It has to line up with this truth. God Almighty, the King of the universe, 
the determiner of history, loves us. He loves us. And if we can truly grasp and believe that, everything in life changes. We know God loves us. We can retreat into this place of delight in times of sorrow and danger and fear and somehow find comfort and love and peace and hope. Because that love never changes. And we want to respond to that love and desire to bring a delight to the one who loves us. And so it dictates our actions and our decisions and our responses. But more about that later. There's something else in this passage that, that really I hadn't paid much attention to until I was studying it through this last time. And, and quite a few of the, the writers on it point this out. And it's verse 33. That not only are we disciples whom Jesus loves, but we are precious children. Dear children, the NIV tries to capture this idea of tenderness. You see, there's a number of different words that Jesus could have used or that John could have used as he puts Jesus' words into the Greek language here. All kinds of different words, several different words, but he uses the word that has to do with little children, with smaller children. With children who recognize they are in need of a parent or a leader or a rabbi or somebody to care for them. And it's a, it's, a, it's a phrase of tenderness. And so this love that he has for us, no matter who we are and where we've been, no matter how old we are, is a tender love for us. Because we are followers of Jesus and he loves us as we love little children that are placed into our care. Well, that's who we are. What do we do? How do we live out this identity? What are some of the implications for our life every day of being these beloved disciples of Christ who treat us as little children? Well, above all, we love in a loving community. Verse 34 says this. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you will love one another. A new command. Don't miss that word. A new command I give to you. Love one another. Now this command to love one another, that's not new. Uh, we know it's not even necessarily Jewish or Christian. There's all kinds of, of teachings and even religions that said, you know, to love one another. That's, that's not new. Old Testament's full of the idea of loving one another. What is new is the second part of that verse. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. This is the command. To love each other as Jesus loves us. So how does Jesus love us? I mean, think that through. Think of the power of the love of Christ. He takes initiative. It's so easy for me to not really do anything until, until it's a response to something else. But Jesus doesn't do that. Love demands that we take initiative when we see some kind of a need, when we see somebody that's placed beside us. It's up to us to take the initiative to reach out our hand first and say, hello, friend. May I know you? Can somehow I love you in some very real and practical way? Can somehow the love of God flow through me even before I know you that well and even maybe before you have accepted me? Jesus loved them by sharing life with them. The mundane things of life. 
He didn't just gather his disciples around for the highlights and for the important times. He lived life together. And this is to love one another, to be in so deeply enmeshed in each other's lives that we do life together, the highs and the lows and the Monday and the in-between. And that love just flows out so that there's a, there's a relationship that's already built in the midst of the mundane so that when the highs and the lows come, There's that relationship that's already established. Jesus spent his life. He was just involved in their lives. And they were involved in his life. Jesus loved them by building bridges between each other. By being a peacemaker. He had tax collectors and zealots. People who sold their souls to Rome for a few bucks. And those who were ready to overthrow Rome with a knife in the side of a Roman soldier. And somehow Jesus was able to bring these people with these different worldviews, these different political aspirations, these different understandings of how things should be. Jesus built bridges between these camps and brought them together. Man, we need that so much in our world today. He loved one another by teaching whatever he knew, by passing on that knowledge about themselves, about the world, and about God. Jesus loved them by confronting them when necessary and pointing out how their lives were not matching up to the way that God would have us love. He loved them by calling them to a higher purpose in life. It's so easy for us to maintain in our conversations the the, the discussion and the, the, the values of the world. And a lot of those are good and it's good to encourage one another. But Jesus continually lifted the eyes of the disciples to a higher purpose, to a higher calling, to a higher reality. The reality of God himself and who we are in God and the mission of God to reconcile all of creation to him. Jesus loved them by caring for their families. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. And of course, as we saw last week, Jesus loved them by washing feet, by taking the lowest possible act of service that he could and delighting them in it and saying now I've shown you how to do it this I want you to do this is how Christ loves and this is his command to us that we are to love one another in just this way you know this is a bit of a controversial passage in John actually and the reason it's controversial (coughs) is because some guys say this is way too exclusive Because Jesus is talking to the community of faith. Love one another. And what about the rest of the world? And and so they say that John, you know, he's misrepresenting Jesus. Because aren't we supposed to love everybody? And the truth is we are supposed to love everybody. But what John does emphasize is love within the community of faith. Yes, we're to love everybody. But there's a particular focus to loving those that God places beside us in the community of faith. Why? So that we become not only a community of faith, but also a community of love. Because it's this community of love. When we love each other as Christ loves, then the world knows that Jesus is true. Then the world sees that there is something different that is possible for them. This power of loving one another cannot be underestimated. You know, in the early years of the faith, within a few hundred years, you died if you became a Christian. Plenty of the younger writes off, you know, wherever I find Christians, I kill them. And yet people kept coming and joining the community of faith. They kept coming and joining the church, even upon pain of death. Why did they do that? 
for one simple reason. They saw and experienced love. And that being loved was worth the danger of death itself for them. It's so important that we not only understand this, but as true disciples, as followers, that we practice this. You know, I was reading uh, D.A. Carson, New Testament scholar in this passage. There's this great, I think it's so true, orthodoxy. In other words, right belief, okay, believing the right thing, getting into the Bible, this is what the Bible says, or this is what we believe, all this. Orthodoxy, having everything in our mind right. Orthodoxy, without principle or first obedience to this characteristic command of the new covenant, is so much humbug. You see what he's saying? He's saying we can believe all the right things. We can be as orthodox, we can be as right in our theology as, as, as absolutely possible. But if we don't love, it doesn't mean a thing. It won't change the world. It won't give witness to who Jesus is. It won't even change our own lives. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. But that you love one another in a particular way. That you love one another just as I have loved you. I, I just think, you've heard me say this so many times, but to me, this is what the church needs to be. This is what this congregation needs to be. This is what this fellowship needs to be. A community that is grounded unswervingly in the truth of God's word. Immovable, unshakable, grounded in orthodoxy, you might say. But with arms of grace and love stretched out as they possibly can to, to encounter and to embrace as many people as possible. Hopefully attracted to those arms by faces filled with joy and of hope. That is the community that Christ describes. That is how we act because of our identity in Christ. That's what we do. We love one another as Christ has loved us. But there's something else we do. With that high standard, it's no surprise that one of the other things that we do is fail. It's in the midst of this incredibly intense time that Jesus faces head on two failures. The first one that starts off, of course, is Judas. With this last intimate invitation to fellowship, Jesus takes the bread and he dips it and he offers it to Judas. And so far, Judas has been tempted. And so far, Jesus, you know, he's taken some steps about, you know, maybe selling out Jesus and so on. But Jesus wants to give him one last expression of love, one last expression of invitation, one last expression of compassion and mercy. And he says, Judas, here it is. Here's the symbol of fellowship. Here's the symbol of intimacy. Here's the symbol of friendship. Here it is. What are you going to do? And Judas takes it not as an invitation of love and of fellowship, but he takes it and it says that Satan entered his heart. The final decision was made. And he left to betray Christ in the ultimate way. 
We're not told about his motives. It's kind of interesting. If you notice that, they don't really, we got all kinds of speculation about his motives. Back when he's criticizing people, you know, because of you know, Mary when she did the feet thing, you know, with the expensive ointment and so on, and Judas, well, you know, the way she, this should have been sold, money given to the poor. But then it says his motive. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. This time, his motive for betraying Jesus isn't said. And, and scholars tell us that the, probably the reason for that is there's all kinds of reasons to betray Jesus. Sometimes we're hurt. Sometimes we're disappointed. Sometimes we're tempted. Sometimes we're just greedy. Sometimes we're just mad. All kinds of reasons that this could happen. But it's so easy and tempting for us at times to betray Jesus. And this is written as a warning that even those most intimate to Jesus, he was right there beside him as the disciples were alongside this table. Judas was right there next to him. And in spite of the intimacy, betrayed him. He'd been basking in the light of Christ, in the grace and the love of God, and now he went out into the darkness and into the night. And there's this great irony. Jesus says what you need to do, go and do quickly. And Joe Judas left. And one of the people say, they think, well, you know, maybe he went to give some money to the poor. Maybe he went to buy some stuff for the feast. Maybe he went to buy the Passover lamb. Well, of course, he did go to buy the Passover lamb for 30 pieces of silver. The true Passover lamb. The one whose death truly causes death to pass over those who will have faith in him. But he's not the only one that fails. The other one that fails is Peter. Another one of those close, intimate people. Peter who promises to lay down his life. But Jesus says, no, you don't understand. In just a few short hours, you are going to betray me three times. You are going to fail three times. How often it is that we promise to lay down our lives in love for those around us. When we promise, say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, so I will love as Christ loves, only to turn around and resent somebody, hold bitterness in our heart, refuse to forgive, and betray what it is that Jesus lays out we are to be. In the context to fail to love others as Christ loved us is to betray Jesus. It's to say a lie, to fail. And this is the reality of the passage, that there's this high standard that Jesus sets for us. Hey, this is this commandment. If you want to be, uh, live out your identity of who you are as a beloved disciple of Christ, as a little child, then what you need to do is love one another as I have loved you. That's the bar. That's the standard. That's how the world's going to know. This community of love is what's going to attract the world to me if you'll just live this out. And the bar is so high, we're bound to fail. As Judas did and as Peter did. But there's something that we have to remember. You know, somebody recently, and I wish I could remember who I, who I heard say it or where I read it, but I can't find it again. It said, you know, one of the worst chapter breaks in the entire Bible is the end of chapter 13 and the beginning of chapter 14 of John. Because you understand that, that those verses and chapters came much later. This is one great big uh, final discourse is called of Jesus. It goes all the way into chapter 17. It's the worst chapter break because if we end chapter 13 we end in this sense of despair there's, there's this high bar and we want to live it we want to have it out but, but we're going to fail and that's so discouraging 
And Jesus looks into the face of Peter, who had the best intentions, as you have the best intentions, as I have the best intentions, as we have the best intentions. And he sees his crestfallen face because he says, no, you're going to blow it. You're going to deny me. You think you're going to die for me and you might take some steps that way, but when push comes to shove, you are going to deny me. But don't let your heart be troubled. I see you crestfallen. I see you disappointed. I see you wish you were more faithful than you are. And you look at your life and you think back over the last week or even this morning and you realize, ah, that didn't look much like Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Because I know that you will be faithless. But I am faithful. There's this great quote that I found by Philip Yancey. It wasn't in his original writing. I couldn't, didn't track down where it came from. But Philip Ramsey wrote this. Judas, remorseful. Remorseful but apparently unrepentant, accepted the logical consequences of his deed, and he took his own life. And he went down as the greatest traitor in history. He died unwilling to receive what Jesus had come to offer him. Peter, humiliated but still open to Jesus' message of grace and forgiveness, went on to lead a revival in Jerusalem and did not stop until he reached Rome. You see, the logical consequence of our recognition that we fall short of the mark, we fail, we have good intentions and we make promises, but we blow it. And the logical consequence of that is self condemnation. It's to judge ourselves unworthy, to have guilt fall upon us so heavily that we just sort of give up on the whole thing. And walk away in shame, never to return. It's, such, it's the logical consequence because, you know, hey, I can't do it. I've tried. This is the tenth time. I've gone and done what I promised I'd never do before. And I'm just going to let the shame come over me. I just, you know, I'm just unworthy. I just give up. But you see, the point of Christ, the point of grace, is that it is not logical. It is not the logical consequence. It is the gift of a loving father who looks at a little child who doesn't have what it takes and offers forgiveness and hope and love and acceptance. And in the face of our failures, because we have them, in the face of our failures is not a call to our dependence upon our faithfulness because we are too often unfaithful and we deny our identity and we fail to live out our identity as beloved disciples. Where we look is Jesus the faithful. You believe in God. You trust in God. That's good. Trust also in me in the face of your failure. Again and again and again. Believe in me. Because Alan, though you are faithless also often. I am faithful 
all the time, says the Son of God, who proved his faithfulness by dying for us. So do not be troubled. In the face of your failure, do not be troubled. Instead, believe in me. Return to me again. And look to me again. Depend upon my forgiveness. Build your life upon my grace. Open your hearts for the refilling of the Holy Spirit who will enable you to stand up and continue this walk of grace and truth and love and life. So Erickson's theory of development says we wrestle with our identities mostly between the ages of 12 and 18. And I suppose that that's the big struggle. We try on different identities and all that kind of stuff. We, we see the, the truth of that in the teenagers that we know. But the struggle for identity continues, doesn't it? As the different waves of life hit us. Who am I? What's my worth? What am I about? Where do I belong? How do I live? Everything's changed. Who am I now? You are a much-loved disciple of Jesus. A little child of God whom God remembers that we are but dust and need to be picked up and forgiven and experience grace all over again. And in that knowledge, for another day, for another day, in the power of the Spirit, we live out this unshakable identity. Because it's who we are. And so it's how we live. Almighty God, we know that we find our identity in all kinds of, of things. And we're told uh, all kinds of things about our identity. And different identities are, are, are put upon us by, by family, by work, by social circles, by media. All kinds of things. And I... And, and there is some change in our identities, in a sense. But there's this bedrock truth. This cornerstone upon which everything else needs to be built. We are beloved disciples of the living Christ. Children of God. Beloved children of God. And that is an unshakable, unchangeable truth. So Holy Spirit, help us to, to believe this again, to believe it afresh, to believe it more deeply. And then empower us to live out this identity. To live out this command that you've given us, that we love one another as you have loved. 
And in these times when we fall short, in these times when we stumble, in those times when we fail, let not our hearts be troubled. But instead, let us look upon your faithfulness and your grace and your redemption and to stand up and to walk again in the power of your Spirit. Because in Christ, this is who you've made us to be. This is what you enable us to do. And for that we thank you, through Christ our Savior. Amen.